We have uh, Mark chapter 9 marked in our Bibles, correct? We are going to talk this week about greatness, about greatness. So let's pray and we'll begin in the Word. Father, again, as we open your, your Word, we, uh, we, just, we want to have our lives transformed by the renewing of our minds. We don't want to be crammed into the value system that the world hands us. We don't want to be uh, just indoctrinated by what the world tells us. Lord, we want to hear from you. Open our minds, Lord. Open our hearts. Open our ears to hear, to help us measure, to help us compare what we read with what we see. And help us to, uh, to be transformed, to be changed as we adopt the value system of the kingdom of heaven, the value systems of eternity that lead to life and peace and joy and eternal life, as opposed to the, the value systems of the world that seem to lead so many to frustration, doubt, discouragement, and destruction. Lord, help us not only to live them ourselves, but to fill us with joy so we can uh, let others see that the goodness of God leads to repentance. And truly, Lord, it's your goodness that has led me to become a follower of you. You've been so good to me. You've been so good to us. And it's in your name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Mark chapter 9, I believe uh, last week we left off at the end of verse 29. So I'll read uh, from, chapter thir- from verse 30 on and we'll finish the chapter this morning. Verse 30 says, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. So as they're heading from the north region of the Galilee, now they're coming back down uh, toward Capernaum, toward Jesus' Galilean headquarters, I guess you say, toward where Peter, the apostle Peter, lives with his family. That's where they're heading to. And Jesus again is sharing with them, this is the second time he's telling them that he is going to be killed and then he's going to rise again. And they're still not really understanding how this fits together. And they're afraid to ask because when they ask a question, they often get embarrassed. uh, And they're embarrassed that they don't know. So like so many of us, we're just going to pretend we know and we're not going to ask and show people that we don't know. So they continue on down to Capernaum. Verse 33 says, Then he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed about among yourselves on the road? So they hadn't said, there's no dialogue between Jesus and and them that we read about here. Uh, But what what gets revealed to us in verse 33 is that while they were traveling from the north of the Sea of Galilee up by Mount Hermon and Caesarea Philippi, uh, as they traveled to Capernaum, the disciples had some good talk time. Good discussion. It was a nice long walk, and they got to talk about stuff. And now remember, Jesus has selected out Peter, James, and John and given them some special opportunities. They were there when Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. He invited those three specifically and uniquely in. And now they were there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, you know, we know Peter. And I would not be surprised if while they're walking, Peter begins to puff himself up. Say, so, you know what, guys, you know, uh, Jesus is, you know, he's really looking out for us. Clearly, he's grooming us. 
to be his uh, vice presidents. You know, clearly we're going to be there very close to him. And, uh, you know, it's just the way it is, guys. Sorry, but that's, that's what he's... And then they would begin to argue back. No, 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 that's not true at all. And so this dispute breaks out about which of them is going to be the greatest. And Jesus knows that he's just listening the whole time and, and he's hearing it. And so they get back to the house and he says, so guys, uh, what were y'all talking about on the road down here? As if he didn't know, right? That's what, that's called a probing question. And instead of him saying, I heard what you guys were talking about, he's going to let them answer. Because sometimes when you have to say it yourself, it sounds different, doesn't it? When someone comes and says something about you, it's easy to attack them back or deny it. But when you have to admit it to yourself, it's a little harder. So Jesus asked them because he knew exactly what they were talking about. And when he asked them, what was their response? (laughs) They didn't say a word. So they must have been aware on some level that maybe their discussion was not uh, a good one. Maybe their discussion was not an appropriate one. But it's a discussion that that exists all throughout human society, especially uh, American society. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's got the best? Who's advancing the most? And and those discussions of greatness, those decisions for and those attacks at and attempts toward greatness tend to divide people because what we see happening, and what I think you would maybe agree with this, I hope you would at least, it's what I observe, is that when people are trying to elevate themselves individually, you become not my, someone to cooperate with, but you become someone to compete with. And that causes people to be divided. You see, when it comes to school, if you get better grades than me, then you're going to get a better scholarship than me. And if you get a better scholarship than me, you're going to get into a better college than me, and you're going to get, into, you're going to get better grades than me, you'll get a better job, and you'll get more money, and you see how the whole thing goes on out, and somehow you'll be happier than me, or you'll be better than me. And I know that second place is called first loser, and I don't want to be first loser. And it works out at work, and it works out in a lot of places. And I think, I think this is a generally understood that we live in a very competitive society, and I think there's a, there's a good aspect to competitiveness that, that I don't want to uh, undermine. But when it comes to Jesus and his guys, now they're no longer walking unified. Now they're arguing. They're disputing with each other, trying to elevate each of them elevate themselves above the other. Now, that would never happen among church groups today. That would never happen among people in church today. Would, we would never see churches trying to elevate themselves over others or people in the church trying to do that to, to make sure that their ministry was noticed. Or, we would never see that. So, so if this doesn't apply to us, we'll just read it and go on. But of course it does. So they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves about who would be the greatest. Now, verse 35, as, and he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So the first thing I notice and the thing I like right off the bat is that he doesn't rebuke them for having that conversation. He doesn't say, how dare you guys discuss that? I'm on the way to the cross. I'm going to be crucified. I told you morons that. And now you're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. You are missing it. He doesn't rebuke them. And I I think it's because when a person says they want to be great in the kingdom, I think that's a great and noble aspiration. See, there's a lot of people that want to be great in the world. And there are God's people that would choose to be great in the world. 
according to the world's measure, whether it's financial, whether it's material, whether it's powerful, whatever it is, think about who you might think of as being great in the world. And think about what they do or what they have or who they are or how they're known. There's a world has its measure of greatness, and it's easy for, the, for God's people to get sucked into that same mentality and bring it in the church. But you know what? Show me people that want to be great for God. There is nothing ever prohibited in the Scriptures about spiritual ambition, not personal ambition, selfish ambition. That's what is damaging. When you want to be seen as above or higher than or greater than another person, that's selfish ambition. That's damaging. But if you want to do great things for God, that's awesome. Because the world isn't coming in to do the work of the church. But so many from the church are out busy trying to get ahead in the world. And I'm not saying, you know, the Bible tells us, hey, whatever you do, do it heartily with all your might. If, if you're, whoever you work for, you should be the best employee you can be. You should, the company should be blessed because of you but that we can easily get that into selfish ambitions and selfish desires because we're going to get together for Thanksgiving and we're going to sit around the table and my successful brother's going to be there. And I don't want to have to admit that he's more successful than me, so I've got to talk about all the successful things I do so that mom and dad, you know, look at me and they understand that I'm important too. Do you get how that works? I mean, we, don't, we know how that works. My brother's a, a doctor up in, in Rhode Island, you know, and, and some of you have very well-off relatives and whatnot and Man, it can be really discouraging, like when you show up at Thanksgiving, you know, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm a loser. I'm tired of being a loser, you know. So we embellish. So, but look, Hudson Taylor said, attempt great things for the Lord and expect great things from the Lord. Think about how spiritually ambitious the Apostle Paul was. And you couldn't stop this guy. He was an aggressive church planter, not because he wanted to be anything himself. It was for the Lord. And so he doesn't bash them for talking about this. He just says, I appreciate that you guys want to be great, but you're aiming at the wrong, you have the wrong definition of greatness. So let me give you the right definition of greatness, and then we'll see if you still want to be great. So he says, if anyone desires to be first, or the Greek word is protos, where we get prototype. The prototype is the, the first one made. It can mean the chief, the first in ranking. If you want to be the highest ranking, he shall be last of all. Now, when I was in school and, and the teacher dismissed us to get in line to go to you know, the auditorium or to go to get in the milk line or whatever it was in elementary school, as soon as, when there was a, a dismissal of the class, the last thing any kid wanted to be was last in line. We want to be first in line. And so the interesting thing is that's where all the competition is. All the competition isn't for last place. Nobody, who's competing for last place? No, no, you go ahead. I, I want to be last. No, 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 really, you be last. No, I want the lowest place in the company. No, no, no. no I want to clean the toilets. Come on, you know. You drive the limo, you be in the limo, and I'll clean the toilets. That's usually not what we hear in the world, is it? But Jesus says, actually, the people in the church that are the lowest, the people in the, in, in the organization that are the lowest, are actually the greatest. See, Jesus turns the whole thing upside down. So everybody that has climbed to the top, then, then the whole thing gets flipped upside down. All of a sudden, where are you? You're at the bottom. And everybody that has 
lowered themselves to the bottom, which is exactly what Christ did. He came and he made himself of awesome reputation. He made himself of no reputation. It was his choice. See, this is not something like someone forces you to down. This is your choice to get lower. And then when the whole thing gets flipped out, all of a sudden, I'm on top. It's like the great reversal. The first, he'll be the last of all and the servant of all. I mean, come on, this is terrible. The one who's great is the one who has all the servants. The one who's great who has the, is the one who has the entourage. The one who has the security team. The one who has the limo. The one who has all these people serving him. Isn't that the one who's great? Well, actually, Jesus says, actually not. The one who is great is the one who is the servant of all. Now think about what that means to be a servant. A servant is concerned with meeting other people's needs. One who is served is concerned with having their own needs met by others. And it looks like greatness to the world. We go, oh, can you believe them? Look what they have. Look what they do. They got this. They got that. And God says, I'm not impressed. You want to know the person that impresses me is that guy at the bottom who's willing and joyful and doing that low job that no one else sees. He gets no recognition. He has, you know, never going to be a millionaire, never going to make it on Wall Street, never going to do this or that. And I'm not saying everybody on Wall Street is... You can be on Wall Street and be a servant. You can work for, any, you can work for the Apple company and be a servant. Matter of fact, this is what we call in, in, Christian, in the Christian life servant leadership. That the one who is the leader is the one who's the servant to all. Not just the servant to other people that can make you great. Because that's where we would go with this. Like, I don't mind being a servant as long as I'm serving someone who's great. Because then I can, like, name drop. I say, well, I'm, you know, I work for so-and-so. And I botched this all up for a service because, you know, I'm, a, I'm ashamed to say I don't follow NBA basketball. And I said Kobe Bryant and I met LeBron James. And so anyway, I met a guy that uh, was working for LeBron, or not for LeBron James specifically, but it worked for this basketball team and was telling me about having met LeBron James. And that's so cool, you know, it's, it's really kind of neat. But, um, th- so, but it's not a hard thing to attach yourself to someone who's great, to say, well, I serve so-and-so who's great, because we can still kind of lift ourselves on that, can't we? We can still kind of, you know, go off of that. But Jesus says, the one who's great is the one who is the servant of the rich and the famous. He says the servant of all. Now, the interesting thing in the Greek language, the word all means all. All. Everybody else's servant. All means every, everybody, everyone. So you come in to this, whatever it is, to work, to the place where you are, no matter what your title is, no matter how many letters are after your name, it doesn't matter. Jesus says you want to be great in the kingdom. You come in and you say, how can I help you get your needs met? What can I do for you? How can I help you advance? How can we as a church help other churches to grow? See, all the church is about church growth. We want to grow our church. Well, I say, well, let's Calvary Fluvanna. How can we, with the strength God's given us, how can we use the strength we have to help other churches and encourage them and empower them? Wouldn't that be radical? Oh, so there's a servant of all. So just in case they didn't get the lesson, he says, uh, verse 36 says, he took a little child and he set him in the midst of them. So he brings a little child 
walking over, he, he puts the child, they're all sitting in a half circle, or they're all hanging around Jesus, and Jesus brings in this, a young child. That's the key, is a young child. And then he takes him up in his arms, so we're not talking a 16-year-old. Jesus isn't, you know, giving a big hug and picking up a 16-year-old. We're talking about a little child. You know, how old? Four, five, six, I don't know, but a little child. Takes him up in his arms, and as he's looking this little child in the eyes, and he's looking at the disciples, he just probably got this great smile on his face, and he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Just in case you were wondering what servant of all meant, how about serving those that are the most vulnerable, the weakest, the littlest, the least esteemed. Now, if you know much or anything about the Roman Empire, you know they practiced infanticide. It means it was a very common practice for them to kill children. number of ways they would do that. The father was the, the head of the, the home, and when the baby was born, the baby would be presented at his feet. And if the father accepted the baby into the family, he would pick it up into his arms. But if he rejected the baby, and that would usually occur because the baby was born deformed or weakly or, or weak or sickly, something like that, then he would refuse and the baby would be put out on the street uh, to either die there or become a slave. And it was the church, it was the Christian people that in the Roman Empire went and found those discarded children. The way we treat children in our culture, what you don't realize is not normative throughout history. There are, are cultures that regularly sacrifice children. But the way we, we think about our children, the way we honor and, and love children uh, is, is largely because of the influence of Christianity and passage like, passages like this. Now, the hard part is to go to a church where there's like, you know, it's the stuffy old people and they don't like the kids around. You know, because this is, kids are vulnerable and they're weak and they're messy and their fingers are sticky and they can't get the whole cookie in their mouth at one time and there's crumbs falling everywhere and then they spit up and there's stains on stuff. And like, you know, wouldn't it be, you know, just, kids are just messy, you know? They, they, they need to be seen and not heard. And, and I am so thankful for the children in this church. And I, and I think Christ is too. The fact that, see, according to the kingdom of heaven, according to God, he says, whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. Hey, children's ministry is where it's at. The real person that gets honor in Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, is not Pastor Steve, it's Pastor Tom. Because he's never going to be interviewed by the local paper about their church, or about his church. He's never going to be, you know, he's never going to retire a millionaire because he chose to serve children. Check this out. This is just, this blew my mind. I had to do a little research on this. And I just want to keep reminding you guys that you're, every dollar you spend is a vote. I'm just saying, just do with that what you will. Every dollar you spend on whatever you spend it on is a vote. So let's keep this in perspective. The average brain surgeon makes 450000 a year. We go, oh, that's a lot of money. You know, that's a lot of schooling. That's a high, <clears throat> highly specialized, um, an amazing field. 450000 a year. Social worker, 46000 a year. This article, I, you know, I'm just quoting from, from this article that I read. A teacher, even in Connecticut, the highest paying state, only makes an average of 63000 By comparison, Kobe Bryant. You already know what's coming, don't you? 2010, $23 million playing basketball alone. 
not including all of the money he, got, he gets from his uh, endorsements. Uh, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Again, I this may be a little outdated. Again, forgive me. It's the, it's the, the article that I read. Last contract, uh, $33 million last season. $33 million. Uh, let's break that down. The regular season has 162 games. And then if he played every uh, possible playoff game, that'd be 17 playoff game, games for a total of 189 games. And he didn't play all those, and he still makes the same. One guy I read about spent most of the season on the bench and still made millions for his contract. But this is A-Rod. 189 games total. If it were true, if he played every game, every inning, he would earn 184357 each game, which would equal about 20484 per inning. And if you go with the average of four at-bats per game, that would be $46,064 every time he stepped up to the plates. Now, compare that. I looked up also the average salary of a children's pastor. It's going up, I'll have you know, which is good news. Uh, the average salary is now up to forty dollars to $45,000 a year. So the average children's pastor makes at least, I mean, the, so, the average children's pastor is so well-respected that he gets paid at least as what A-Rod what a gets every time at bat. But doesn't our, can't you follow the money trail to see what's really important? So, you know, just a personal challenge to just look at your, looking at your own life and, you know, where you, where you put your money and what you invest in. And, and God would say, invest in children. Invest in children because there's a world abusing them. Now, what if a guy like Kobe Bryant said, you know what? I really feel called to children's ministry. Now, I'm not, don't, don't take that too far. I'm not saying, you know, I'm saying, let's just say he got saved. I don't know if he saved or not, but let's just say radical conversion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my career as a professional athlete, and I'm going to become a children's pastor at my local church. Oh. The world would say, what are you doing? God would say, way to go. You have just become greatest in heaven. It's perspective, isn't it? It's all about perspective. Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So the key to greatness, look out for the little guy. Great people, look out for the little guy. A kid is never going to be, working with children, you're never going to be a millionaire. You're never going to, my, my dad, special ed teacher. That my dad, I didn't grow up in a mansion. I didn't grow up with a million dollars. I didn't grow up, any of that. Not, not that any of that is wrong, but what I'm saying is when you choose to serve children, you choose to be very insignificant in the world, except to those who find those things significant. And you'll be, you'll be significant there. And to choose to, to minister to the least of these, to, to those that are vulnerable and weak and, and impressionable and so on, is to receive Christ himself. To receive them is to receive Christ and to receive Christ is to receive God himself. Well, John uh, feels the need to interrupt Jesus, verse 38. Now John answered him. He picks up on in my name, and he says, uh, he answers Jesus and saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. Way to go, John. The, you are the ministry police. 
He is the self-appointed ministry policeman. So you can imagine when he's saying this, he's expecting, attaboy, John, way to go. Good job. I can't believe they were doing that. Twice in the sentence, and you see that the issue here is not following us, does not follow us, with the emphasis on the word us. It's not about false doctrine. It's not about false teaching. The problem is, Jesus, you'd be proud of us. You see, we care about your name and doing things in your name. And, and this guy, well, he was casting out demons in your name. Evidently being successful, that might have made them jealous. Do you remember why? Remember what the disciples had a hard time doing at the beginning of the chapter? The, the boy with the demon that they couldn't cast out. So now they see someone else doing it. Now, wait a second. You know how that envy works. You know how that jealousy works. If someone else is doing better things than you, well, there must be some problem with them. There's, there's, there's dishonesty. It's, it's corrupt. There's something wrong. They can't be doing better than us. So we have to find a way to, to knock them down a, a rung so that we can elevate ourselves. Hey, Jesus, they're casting out demons in your name, and, and we told them to knock it off. Quit setting people free in Jesus' name because you don't belong to the right to not, because you're not Calvary Chapel. I mean, how can you possibly be saved if you don't study verse by verse? I mean, it's just not possible. How can you possibly do these things? Well, you, you, you know, so many people align themselves denominationally. Well, that, that church is, you know, and we write each other off. Well, you know, that church follows this. They light candles, or they do this, or they do that. And, oh, how can they, you know, ah, they're not like us. We're the ones that have it right. I, maybe you heard the story about the guy that dies and he, he goes to heaven and there Peter meets him at the pearly gates and Peter says, okay, denomination, please. Oh, well, I'm Methodist. Oh, okay, room 28. But as you go by room 8, be really quiet. Hmm, okay, down he goes, room 28. Another guy shows up, heaven. Peter says, uh, denomination, please. Well, we're Baptist. I'm, I'm a Baptist. Oh, Baptist, room 24. But as you pass by room 8, be really quiet. Okay, third guy comes up. He Stands there before us. Peter, P- Peter, okay, denomination, please. I'm Pentecostal. Oh, Pentecostal, room 12. But as you go by room 8, just be really quiet. And he says, well, that's kind of strange. Why, why do I have to be quiet when I go by room 8? Well, room 8 is where all the people from Calvary Chapel are, and they think they're the only ones here. Now again, you can saw, I use self-deprecating humor. I bust on us because if I say it's the Baptist, that, you know, the Baptist, they think they're the only one here, then someone tells their friend and I get a phone call. And why would you down the Baptist that way? So not doing that. We'll, put, we'll make ourselves the brunt of the joke, right? Because we recognize the truth of that. Uh, you know, try to get churches to work together. To do, try to get people to look past, you know, uh, the denominational differences, the subtleties of, of form, uh, the subtleties of, of uh, differences. It's like near impossible. And, and, and there's so much self-promoting that goes on in the church. Look, I am a Christian. Martin Luther didn't die for my sins. Much as I respect him as a man of God and what he's done in the church, he didn't die for my sins. John Wesley didn't hang on a cross for your sins. As much as a, of a spiritual man, a spiritual influence that he had and Chuck Smith had and Billy Graham had and, and whoever else had, John the Baptist, 
the focus goes to Jesus Christ, first and foremost. And we can divide ourselves. See, first, their thoughts of greatness of themselves individually cause them to divide. Jesus says, no, it's about serving everyone. That brings people together. Hey, thoughts of uh, elevating our, our group above other groups. Hey, that divides people. People that are great think more inclusively than exclusively. People that are great, organizations that are great, think about the big picture and not the small picture. Hey, Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, he was in prison, people preaching Christ, some with the right motives, some with the wrong motives. They were preaching Christ just to drive a nail into Paul, just to bug him because he was in prison and he couldn't and they were stealing all of Paul's disciples while he was in prison. And Paul says, you know what? That's okay with me. He says, as long as Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. Whether they do it them the right motives or the wrong motives, if they're preaching Christ, whatever their motives, as long as Christ is preached, people are being set free, God is being glorified, then, hey, that is cool with me. I can rejoice in that. And so that's what Jesus goes on to say to, to the disciples, is that, hey, we, we told him not to do that. Don't do anything good because you're not part of our group. Jesus said, don't forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. And Jesus would take that from the other perspective as well. He says, for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, gives you, John, a cup of water, someone ministered to you in just a really small way. And maybe they weren't part of your group, but they ministered to you. And they're going to have a reward for that. You're not rewarded in heaven because of your denominational affiliation. He says, someone, whoever, look at that word. That, the key word there is whoever. Whether you define yourself as Methodist or Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever it else you might say, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he'll by no means lose his reward. I remember when, uh, you know, I, I enjoy Calvary Chapel because this, this affiliation has ministered to me greatly. And I enjoy the verse-by-verse Bible teaching and, and all of that. But I remember when, uh, when we were first starting Calvary Chapel, Frank Signoretti and I had traveled down to Stone Mountain, Georgia to a, a Calvary Chapel conference. And we hadn't done the affiliation process yet. So we, were, we started out as Fluvanna Christian Fellowship 12 years ago when we first started the church. And uh, we were coming home from Georgia, having been at this conference, and I remember looking at Frank and saying, like, if we could never be Calvary Chapel, would you still do it? Would we still do it? And the answer was, absolutely, because it's never been about Calvary Chapel. It's never been about that. It's been about the Word of God, getting people out, the Word of God out to people so they can meet Jesus Christ, so they can be saved. And and I I don't think I quoted this yet, but I'll, I'll remind you again, the more spiritual a person is, the less denominationally minded they become. The more spiritually minded a person is, the less denominationally minded they become. You want to be great? Think big picture and not small picture. Well, this brings up another discussion. So people are are doing things in the name of the Lord. They're blessing other people. They're going to have reward. But what about those that cause others to stumble? You see, great people are those that recognize their actions affect others. So... We would say, hey, great people are those that use others to advance 
And that's oftentimes what it takes to become great. You've got to use other people to advance, whatever the cost. Uh, Jesus says, no, great people are the ones that, uh, that, seek to, that see how their actions can hurt other people, can hurt other people. And so Jesus goes on to say, this is all the same discussion about greatness, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. That's kind of a radical statement. This sounds like the mafia. I mean, cement shoes, right? Now, Jesus, imagine, he's holding this child. John interrupts him with this side discussion about this guy that wasn't following them. Jesus now gets back to the discussion at hand about greatness, and he's still got the little child in his arms. And he looks again at this little child, and he says, if anybody would cause one of these little ones to stumble. That's a really bad thing. And we live in a world filled with children being exploited, don't we? For the purposes of adults and their money and their advancement and their power. Child pornography, child prostitution, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, child labor. All of those things. See, children are vulnerable they're weak, they're impressionable. And God says that if someone is going to cause them to stumble, and that's not, that's not just exploiting them, but that can even be uh, academic bullying. So let's just, let me paint the picture. Um, this word stumble is a stumbling block or a stumbling stone. It means putting something else in someone else's way so that they trip over it. So if, if you saw Pastor Steve out in the fellowship hall after service, and here comes a, a young child, a five-year-old kid, come running across. And I was like, ooh, watch this. And I put my foot out. And they go, ooh, tripping and bang. And they fall on the floor. You guys are going to be like, oh, that's horrible. What did you do? You just tri- You're a bully. And you'd be right. I mean, who would trip up a little kid like that? But you think about it. Whoever would cause one of these little ones that believe, that believe. So that's the core of this is not just, you know, not just social activism, but actually belief, belief in Jesus. Kids want to believe. Kids want to believe. Kids are naturally attracted to Jesus Christ. They are. I've seen it with my own eyes. They have to be discouraged by adults who tell them they are believing a myth. They're believing a lie who tell them, no, 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 creation isn't right, it's evolution. Be careful. I remember hearing there was a a debate a number of, maybe a year ago, more than a year ago, Bill Nye, the science guy. My kids grew up watching Bill Nye, the science guy, and he said to us as Christian parents, how dare we bring our kids up? It it was tantamount to abusiveness to bring our kids up to believe in Jesus. And Jesus says, if you take a child... And you cause them to stumble by lead, introducing them to drugs, introducing them to, you know, to drug trafficking, introducing them to pornography. Now, can, they, can a child be saved out of that? Absolutely. We got some in here that are saved out of lifestyles like that. And especially if someone's going to lead a child away from the Lord. Then he says, you'd be better off if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, you guys know my swimming ability. I don't need a millstone. They just throw me in the sea, I'm going to the bottom. I don't need the extra weight 
Uh, for some reason, I am not buoyant. I just go right to the bottom. It's not a hard thing. But uh, I would say that we would agree that Jesus takes this seriously, wouldn't you? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where, third repetition, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So there is a sense in this of personal responsibility for sin. Well, it wasn't me. It was that my darn eyeball that keeps causing me to sin. You know, if it would... It's just that's the, we, we can blame other things for sin. We can blame other people. We can blame situations. Oh, and and the, guy that's, the person that's great takes personal responsibility for their sin in their life and recognizes that sin in your life can cause children to stumble, can cause others to stumble. Pope Francis quoted this, said it was the headline of a, of a news article from during his, uh, his, his tour that one in 50 Catholic priests has engaged in pedophilia. And those people grow up and you think they want to come to church. Do you know how hard it is to convince them that God is love? Do you know how hard it is to convince a person that has been abused in church to believe in the God of the Bible that is love? It's so hard. It's so hard. Uh, one abuse or another abuse. And so look, he says, it would be better to, to let go of the part so that the whole doesn't end up in hell. So a uh, number of years ago, my wife had gotten very sick with MRSA. I don't know if you know what that is. It's, a, it's an infection that can go systemic. And at the same time, I remember we were doing some research about it. And, and she recovered, praise the Lord, she recovered fully from that. Uh, it was amazing the way God sustained her through that. But we had read an article about a, a Brazilian supermodel at the time who also had a systemic infection. And they were fighting it and they couldn't get it under control with antibiotics. And so they started to systematically amputate feet hands, the extremities. Why? To try to save her life because the infection was spreading. And so we realized that, you know, I don't want to, look, we're going to come back here next Sunday and meet again. And I don't want to see you guys like with patches on your eyes, like limping in, like I went on, listen to the sermon, pastor. Thanks a lot. You know, <laughs> had to cut the eye out, had to cut the hand off, you know, and I'm still not done because I still have a, a brain and it can imagine sinful things, so got to cut that out. Uh, and so the point isn't that you should go home and, and maim yourself because the root of sin isn't in these things. The point is, is that there's nothing that, again, speaking of greatness, right? Well, my hand, I can't get, I can't get rid of my hand. My hand is what I use to, to establish my greatness. You know, I work with my hands to be great. There's no, there's no thing in this world that you could obtain, use to obtain worldly greatness that would necessitate you, that, would be, that you would be willing to keep that would eventually lead you to hell. He said, there's a trade-off. If, if you should be willing to sacrifice anything, the most important things, to not stumble yourself, 
to not stumble others, to not end up where? He doesn't say um, just eternal annihilation. He says hell or Hades, or not, excuse me, not Hades. This is Gehenna. In the Greek, it's Gehenna. And it comes from the Valley of Hinnom. Now, the Valley of Hinnom is where they had the sacrifice of children in the Old Testament. That's where children were sacrificed. That was part of worship in, in the uh, pagan cultures, sacrifice children. Some of you remember um, the guy that came and spoke here, uh, a friend of ours from Advancing Native Missions. Kishore is his name. He spoke about he was going to be sacrificed by his dad to the gods, to the Hindu gods. And his, I think it was his mom that sort of saved him. So this still happens. And uh, so that's where child sacrifice happened, the Valley of uh, Hinnom. Then in the New Testament times, what, what ended up happening there is this became the local landfill where they burned and incinerated the garbage, the trash. Uh, and so it was a place where, you know, you've got compost going on, so there's worms crawling through it. It's a place of corruption. It's a place of fire. And so that came to, for the New Testament mind, represent uh, and be symbolic of eternal judgment. By the way, interesting side note, if you like language, the word not quenched, not quenched, is where we get our word asbestos, asbestos. So I don't know what eternal fire is like. We're, you know, the things that will eat us up in eternity, the things that uh, we could have done and didn't, the things that we, we turned away from when we shouldn't have, the things that we allowed uh, and when we accepted, that, that thing that's going to eat you up eternally, that worm or that fire, speaking of the external, that, that doesn't speak of eternal annihilation. It speaks of asbestos, something that is burned but never consumed by the fire. Now, I don't understand all that, uh, but, I, I, but I believe it. And he says, look, if any of these things is causing you to sin, it's, it's better for you to avoid those things, to co- get rid of anything in this world that would keep you from heaven. Anything that comes between you and God, anything that would cause a stumbling block, get rid of it. You're saved by grace, not by your works. But once you're saved, that same grace leads you into a life of holiness, leads you into a life of purity. And so that's why Jesus then says in verse 49, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. You love that, fire, that, that smoky flavor, that smoky meat smell. We love our smoked barbecue, our you know, hickory smoked, wood grilled, whatever. That's the seasoning. Jesus says everyone will be seasoned with fire. So, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? He says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And so that's where Jesus is going. Hey, guys, have peace with each other. Remember how we started this discussion on greatness? What were they doing? They were disputing with each other. There was envy. There was jealousy about what other people were doing. Hey, guys, whatever it takes, be it, don't, let, don't let efforts for greatness don't let selfish ambitions, don't let jealousies or envies or, or placing your own rights over the, the needs of others, don't let any of that stuff cause you to cause divisions. Hey, be at peace with each other. It says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. The two ways that this could happen, number one, the, the speaking of the fire of eternal judgment or the fire of personal purity. And you get to choose which fire occurs in your life. If you, if you don't purify now, you may end up facing the fire later. See, this is what Peter talks about this in his letter about fiery trials. 
that purify. This is what the fire does. Fire, when it comes to gold or silver, you subject that precious metal to the fire and the dross or the impurities rise to the top. They can be scraped off and it becomes more pure. And so the fire has a purifying effect, but for those things that are not, that, that are temporary, the, the fire has a destroying effect. And so he says, everyone will be seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt makes stuff taste good, doesn't it? I mean, I've seen some people put, like, you know, I sit down to dinner with a guy and it all and it's salt, 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 salt on everything. And man, it does taste good. And you watch any cooking show and they'll tell you, you got to have plenty of salt. Salt just makes stuff taste good. And it, it purifies. And it preserves. And we know that. And that's why Jesus says, Salt is good. I mean, it was Leviticus 2.13 says every sacrifice that's brought to God gets salted. It's going to taste good. Salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? Hey, salt is great, but it, it doesn't have ingredients. You can't season salt. Have you ever tried that? Give your kids that test. Hey, kids, tonight for homework, Daddy wants you to season the salt. Watch them try to chug that one out of their brain. How do we do that? You can't do it. Salt is a seasoning. And if it is not seasoning, there's no way to re-season it. It is its essential nature, is saltiness. And if it loses its flavor, what do you do then? He had told the guys, he has told us, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. And if we lose that, What's plan B? Who else is going to salt the earth besides us? We're it. And if we lose that saltiness, if we lose, lose that flavoring of Christ, then it's just gone. It's useless. And so all the things Jesus is talking about, all, we have to take our, our own value system and say, is that right? Because you've inherited it. You were born into a value system here in America that's different than the value system you would have if you lived in China. And so you take, here's the things I was born in, here's the things that I'm told to value, and now I have to say, but I'm reborn, I'm born again into the kingdom of God. And that has a value system that is upside down from what the world believes. And you've got to decide whether you accept it or not. You have to decide whether you agree with it or not, and then live it. I love the stickers. Have you seen the stickers that you see on cars now and nowadays? Salt Life. Anybody seen those? Salt Life. I thought, what is that? That must be a Christian sticker. That was my first thought. That must be a Christian sticker. Because that's an awesome saying. Salt Life. Yeah, I agree, man. We're supposed to be the salt of the earth. Well, I looked it up. It was made by, uh, developed by four guys that love the ocean. They love to surf. They love to scuba dive. They love to swim. They love to parasail, whatever it is. Whatever it is, they, they, anything to do with the ocean, they love it. And they said, we developed this not just as a, a logo, but as a lifestyle. Those that have this beach lifestyle. And I thought, wow, th th that really would apply like salt life rather than just an ocean-centric life that's described by, hey, I'm living the salt life. I think that would describe the Jesus life. Hey, I'm living the salt life. The world may not appreciate me. I may never live in a mansion. I may never be on the cover of Time magazine. But I was able to sit on Friday and teach this passage at the soup kitchen to people that are unemployed or homeless, jobless, and say, you know what? 
You may never be great in this world. You may never be significant according to this world's standards, but you can be significant in the kingdom by serving those that are less fortunate than you. You can do that no matter where you are. Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. So many people, bad taste in their mouth about church. They've seen the competition. They've seen the division. They see the inability for us to work together. They go, yeah, lost my taste for church. Sorry. I think we got to get it back, right? Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, as we uh, close up your word, I pray, Lord, that we would understand, and not just understand, but comprehend what it takes, what sacrifices might be needed to live the salt life of Christianity, to be great, not in the world's eyes, Lord, but in your eyes. And if whatever that takes, Lord, help us to value the things you value, to honor the things that, that you honor, and to appreciate others that are giving you honor too, no matter where they are or what their denomination is. Lord, we want to live this, but we need your help. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's stand.